Now, yes, even though Trina and I were the pastor's kids, it didn't mean that Dad was unaware of how it felt to be off the rails in his own life. Dad certainly knew what it was like to stray. It's possible you saw him depicted on the national TV program that I will not mention here, out of legal concerns. And you may think you have an idea of who Dad really was, but nobody knows a man like his son does, if you know what I mean. Chapter 5 I found out when I was older that when Dad was a young man, he spent a lot of money on cars, guitars, and snakes. That was in addition to facing regular bills, plus the church bills, and other expenditures we all have to pay. Dad footed the bills for the church instruments and such, and when things got hard, whether wintertime or summertime, he'd always have to find a way to buy the church snakes. Sometimes he'd pawn a guitar to pay the bills. I remember he was always in a hole trying to get the guitar out of Hawk, mainly living paycheck to paycheck. He always struggled a little bit. There were times when he couldn't even afford a double cheeseburger at McDonald's. It sometimes got a little rough for us. I should also say this. When I turned 15, Dad bought me my first vehicle, a 98 Ford F-150. It was a single cab 4x4. He bought my sister her Plymouth, too, and made payments on both of our vehicles. Not only that, but he had his own cars to pay for, too. Looking back on it, I feel like his situation could have been somewhat my fault. Only when I turned 16 and started roofing down in Rogersville, Tennessee, did I take the payments on myself. Until then, I recall Dad never forced me to make any car payments. I spent about two years of my life down in Rogersville. As part of that roofing crew, I'd stay down there for about a week at a time, even though I was supposed to be in school. I was supposed to be doing eight hours of school a day, but I wasn't. In those days, I was either in Rogersville or else I stayed at friends' houses for days on end. I tried my hardest to stay away from home as much as I could. One day, though, It seemed Dad had had enough. Cody said, Please come home. Could you just come home for a little while? So I went home for a few days, long enough to catch up on my schoolwork. But then, boom, I was gone. Out of there. Back at a buddy's house for another week or two. It all boiled down to this. I stayed away from home because I hated my family. And that was it. I blamed them for everything that had happened to me. I didn't want to be around them. I took every opportunity to completely abandon them. But like I said, Dad understood. He knew what it was like to be wild. He had gone to public school himself, graduated from Bell County High School. He was an alcoholic by the time he was 14. In his late teens, he regularly snuck out of the house to go party. He must have accumulated 22 traffic violations in that time. Varying from driving an unregistered vehicle, to burning out tires at stop signs, to speeding. You get the idea. When he'd sneak out, he'd take Pap's truck. Pap had a really loud truck. A Jeep Wagoneer with a 360 in it. He'd creep out to the Wagoneer and put it in neutral. Then roll the Jeep down to the stop sign. He'd roll it a good ways down the street, 
Then once he was far enough out of earshot, Dad would crank that monster up and roar off down the road. No matter how far down the road he pushed the truck, it was always so loud that Pap could hear him driving off. Pap never did anything about it, though. He'd just stay up late praying to God, saying, Lord, please let Jamie get back home safe. From what I was told, when Dad turned 19, he and Mom married. And soon after that, they decided they wanted to be saved. They just didn't want to continue the wild ways that Dad had gotten himself accustomed to. I think Dad must have started partying when he was about 15 years old. He rambled on until the day he was married. After that, he calmed down a good bit. He got himself back in church. From what I've heard, he wasn't back in church for a year before they asked him to take it over. Papa Greg came and said, Jamie, I want you to be praying about something. No, Dad said. I know what you're fixing to ask. I don't want a pastor at the church. And that's how Dad got stuck being pastor. He became pastor of that church when he was only 20 years old. His biggest issue as a young preacher was one I faced later in life. When they handed the church over to him, some of the congregants who had been around for 20 or 30 years, many who had been there since the days my great-grandfather Tommy preached, refused to listen to a word that Dad had to say. It was almost like they said, Jamie, we do want you to be pastor, but we will not listen to you. We won't abide by your rules, your teachings, or your beliefs. I remember him going at it with a few of these folks. He stood his ground, too. Whenever he spoke his beliefs, some folks just got plumb mad about it. His own mom got mad about some things, but Dad believed what he believed. And he even instructed her, too. You can't be wearing pants, he'd say, and you can't be wearing makeup. He'd argue with people like that. In turn, they'd argue right back. I think Dad was a strong person. He never hesitated to put his foot down. He'd say, Y'all didn't place me in authority over this church. God did. You can't run me off. You don't have the power to. If you don't like what I say, well then, my friends, there's the door. For the first six years of his ministry, this is the way it went. Also, to be fair, Dad was fairly hard on people too. I know he felt a little bitter because nobody seemed to like him. Then again, he could really cut a person to the bone, especially if he believed in something strongly. If he felt it, he'd tell a person they were headed straight for hell. That's just the way he was molded. They had brought him up that way, and he embraced it fully. At the same time, it does make you wonder, is this how it must be for a man? Does it really have to be so that a man constantly wants to quit being pastor, feeling as if it's not even worth trying anymore? All Dad ever seemed to get was lip. He got mouthed at constantly and was always in an argument with someone. All to say, I'd say it was hard on Dad being pastor. With everything going on in my life, I was able to find a little peace watching WWE wrestling on Monday nights. Dad stayed up late with me, too. We'd watch Monday Night Raw together. Dad said he grew up watching it, just like I had. So, it was something we had in common. 
We'd go to the video store and rent a few of the 90s pay-per-views VHS tapes. And it didn't take us long to go through all of them, because I was absolutely hooked. It was violent and highly interesting. People getting smashed with steel chairs and thrown down steel steps. Sometimes they even got hit with sledgehammers. They jump off ladders onto tables and got thrown off the stage. I once saw a guy get set on fire. There was always lots of blood. Of course, I knew it was fake, but it felt so real to me. It felt like I knew the wrestlers personally somehow. My absolute favorite guy, a wrestler I completely related to, and not just because of his real-life tragedy and horror story, was Chris Benoit. Benoit was the everyman's hero. He had steely eyes and an angular jaw, and always wore a mullet. He was awesome. His storyline was the best by far. He was written as the man the establishment wanted to keep down. Benoit was a great underdog. He didn't really belong, according to the bosses. Not like the other, more accomplished wrestlers who were embraced by the establishment. As for Benoit, they constantly denied him his big shot because the men up the chain didn't want to see him have the world championship belt. They always wanted to set him up to lose. When the fans got mad about this, just like Dad and I did, because we all wanted to see Benoit win the whole thing, it seemed to get management's attention. What they did was this. They did give Benoit his shot, but it was the toughest draw on Royal Rumble. That means he was the first of 30 entrants to enter the ring and had to fight 30 wrestlers in a row in a last man standing style format. Imagine having to face 30 wrestlers straight. You'd be plumb wore out by the end. Needless to say, when Dad and I watched that bout, we both knew it was Benoit's time to shine. He did make it to the final wrestler, the fearsome Big Show. And then it's the Big Show! And Benoit beat him too. I will never forget watching Royal Rumble with my dad on January 25th, 2004. It was just the two of us. What a night. I also remember the theme song clearly. It really stuck out to me. It was a hard rock song by a band called Puddle of Mud. I remember the lyrics even more clearly than the rumble. It felt like it had been written just for me, with everything I was going through. It really seemed to hit home. Here's a few words from the song. You can probably see why it would resonate with me. Something's taken over me, bottled up inside me, crawling, crawling in the shadows so no one finds me. Hiding, paranoid, I suffer, no sleep. I've got nothing left to lose. Man, I felt that song. All the anger I had contained for having to endure what I had, I just felt poised to expel all the hate that had been building up inside me. I was not allowed to listen to music like that. As a matter of fact, the only music I was allowed to listen to was gospel music. A band like Puddle of Mud was completely off limits. But after hearing that song on that memorable night, I felt drawn to more songs like it. I wanted to hear things that would help me unleash this anger. So I started listening to the Puddle of Mud song over and over for years and years, on loop, on the sly. 
I thought about Chris Benoit when I listened. Not just the way he won the Royal Rumble, but also how he went on to real tragedy in real life. Maybe you know the story. The wrestling world is in shock tonight. Chris Benoit was found dead in his home in Atlanta. Also discovered dead was his young son and his wife. In 2007, three years after he won the championship belt, the law entered Benoit's home. They found Benoit, his wife, and his son all dead. Benoit's wife was tied up and his son was full of Xanax. The boy had been strangled. The cops determined that Benoit had killed his wife and son over the span of a three-day period. Benoit was also discovered on the scene, dead by hanging. I sat and thought about that a lot. I started to think about committing suicide myself. I did it quite a bit. It seemed to me that Chris and I had so much in common. I had issues. He had issues. He was an incredibly nice guy who went out night after night, who did an awesome job at his profession. Watching him, it didn't seem like he had a single problem, but of course, he did. I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to hang myself just like he had. Sometimes I would dwell on it for days and days. I would just sit there and picture myself hanging, back and forth, back and forth, swinging from side to side. I once knew a man from the faith who had gotten divorced. They told him he could never preach again. They said his soul was doomed to hell. One day, he called my dad and told him he was planning to hang himself. He didn't end up doing it. But later in life, they did find him hanging from a tree. He was swinging over one of his favorite snake hunting spots. A place called Cabin Holler. It was where I hunted snakes myself. Back where the road is washed out, you can walk deep into the holler. I always thought it would be a great place to hang yourself. I just never made the time to do it. My relationship with Dad kept getting stronger all the time. After all the turmoil I'd been through, that was a good thing. I know my sister was probably having a hard time, but sometimes, like I said, even though there were so many times she helped me out, trying to keep me out of trouble, she never asked for any help herself. Well, except this one time. This was when she had a little green Dodge Neon. One day she called me out of the blue. Cody, she asked. I'm stuck. Can you come pull me out? Sure. Where are you at? I'm over on 45th Street. 45th? That surprised me. 45th was where all the terrible stuff that happened to us. For some reason, her car was stuck in a ditch just across the street from the House of Horror. Her neon was a front-wheel drive. Her rear end had slid into the ditch. By the time I arrived, she was completely out of commission. I got out of the truck and pushed up on the back of her car until the front wheels touched the asphalt. Then, she hit the gas and her car jerked free. 
She rolled down the window. Thanks, Cody, she said. She seemed so sad to me. Why are you here, I asked. I really couldn't think of a reason why she would be stuck out there. She just looked back at me, almost like she was looking through me. She said nothing. She never did tell me why she was there. I think she was just sitting across from the house of horror staring at it. I think she was reliving what had happened to us. She must have been thinking about all those things, which was something I did myself whenever I had the chance to go down there. She never talked about those terrible things with me. Never at all. In the days when it was happening, I remember asking her once if the man had done anything to her. She just shook her head no. It was the only time we ever spoke of that situation, before or since. Even through all the turmoil, life suddenly became pretty great. As great as it could be. I had become pals with Dad, and that was good. But also, in the back of my mind, I still knew that I had a humongous problem. I was, without a doubt, completely and totally addicted to pornographic movies. In addition to that, there was so much hate, so much anger, that continued to boil inside of me. Even so, on Monday nights, and for one Sunday a month, I would put all of that on hold. I escaped with my dad and watched WWE wrestling. It was really the only good thing I can remember about my childhood. (laughs) 